All right, well, we're in this series, This is Church, and so we've defined church as, and we've declared that Jesus is the head of the church. That's where we started this whole series months ago. We've looked at marks of the church, metaphors for the church, and last week we kind of finished up our, our little two-part mini-series within this called My Job, Our Job, and we talked about last, or two weeks ago, how we're priests and part of being a priest is declaring the praises of God. We share the gospel. That's one amazing way to declare the praises of this great God. So today we launch from here. And you know, the sermon is actually titled Church Discipline. The subtitle is in your bulletin. <laughs> the sermon that no one wants to preach but everyone needs to hear. And so uh, today before we get going though, there's really a matter that we need to deal with as a family. And uh, Thomas, I need to ask you to, if you'd come up here and, and stand next to me. Yeah, Thomas, if you can come up here. Um, so, uh, you know, Thomas, a grave matter has come to our attention as a church. And really, we need to bring this before the entire body. And, uh, and several things that we need to talk about here. The first thing that came to my attention was actually uh, just yesterday. We realized that over the last 52 weeks, Thomas has missed three Sundays. And what's more, he didn't... No, you don't get to talk. I'm sorry. What's more, he didn't call the office and let us know that he was going to be gone. He just missed. And just because you were in Africa for one of them, that doesn't count. On more than one occasion, Thomas has been late for an elders meeting. A couple times he's been more than four minutes late. Thomas' family let me know that on Thanksgiving Day, he ate way too much turkey. Thomas has patronized Walt Disney World. In spite of the Southern Baptists banning people from Walt Disney World, he went anyway. There's a rumor that he's jealous of Jeff Johannesson's height. Perhaps most egregious of all, Thomas is unabashedly has declared himself to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. And I think we would all agree that these are problems. And so in light of these iniquities, the second row of Waukee Community Church has declared that Thomas is no longer fit to sit in the second row. In fact, they have all gotten together and banished him to the front row. From now on, he'll be known as the front row guy or that guy. And so Thomas has been excommunicated from the front row. So Thomas, in shame, you may return to the front row and sit for the remainder of the service. Not even your wife may sit next to you. All right. Uh, you, as ridiculous, you really can sit next to your wife, Thomas. It's okay. Um, as ridiculous as this might seem, for many of us, when we hear the word church discipline or we talk about church discipline, we, we think or we see of some scenario like this. We think of someone standing before the entire church and being excommunicated in shame. And church discipline is a scary subject. And what, let's be honest, I mean, what church does this today? What church actually does church discipline? What pastor's crazy enough to even talk about it in public? I, me. You know, uh, what, why would anyone choose to walk through something like that? 
And so as, as I was thinking about right marks of a church, one of the right marks of a church is a church that actively practices church discipline. The other thing I was pondering as I was preparing for this message is, how is this message helpful to people today? <laughs> you know, how is this helpful to talk about church discipline? I mean, maybe, you know, you think, well, if I fall into blatant public sin, I'll know what's going to happen to me, and that's helpful. Or maybe, you know, you're just kind of wondering, okay, Dave, church discipline, but how is this helpful? Well, here's what you need to know today. You and me, we need church discipline, all of us, because we all need to be more like Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5 is kind of the primary go-to passage when we talk about church discipline because Paul instructs the church of Corinth how to deal with public blatant sin in their midst. And in the midst of really thinking through this question, how is this helpful, I stumbled across a verse that I've really never paid attention to in this passage before. But, and I want to point you to it today. In the middle of discussing this really crazy, tough church discipline case, this sermon probably isn't going to make you feel warm and fuzzy, but in the midst of this, in the midst of talking about this, Paul says this. Put that verse up there. He says, in talking about church discipline, he says, hand this man over to Satan so that his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Wow. That's powerful. The NIV, I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean? Hand him over to Satan so that his flesh can be destroyed and his spirit saved. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting because when you look at Paul and Paul's patterns of using language, all throughout many of Paul's letters, we recognize that Paul understands that there's, there's this dual nature within every person. He calls it in some places the sin nature, the new nature, the old man, the new man. There's old clothes, new clothes illustrations. But the NIV correctly picks up on what Paul is saying here and translates it sin nature. Now this is an interpretation, but it's very common in Paul to do that. See, Paul recognized that there is this duality in us. There's this number one nature, this sin nature, and every person, with the exception of Jesus who was born since Adam, every person has a sin nature. It's in us. It's pulling us. And before we come to Jesus, we're ruled and run by our sin nature. But when we come to Christ, when we bow at the foot of the cross, and when we say, Jesus, I need the forgiveness that only you can offer, and when we through faith believe that his sacrifice and resurrection is enough for us, when we do this, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and Paul says we have a new nature. And so we begin the sanctif sanctification process, the process of being made more like Jesus. There's two natures now. And what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 5 is that someone's old nature is ruling and winning the battle. And God is dealing with that sin nature. And in this case, in God's sovereign, powerful way, He's even using Satan. Satan intends evil, but God intends to use that for good. God intends to root out the sin nature in this man in 1 Corinthians 5. He intends to root it out in you. He intends to root it out in me so that 
the sanctification process works. Well, you say, Dave, how is this helpful, you know? (laughs) Should we just hand each other over to Satan? Is that what this is about? Well, let's look at the background of 1 Corinthians 5 so we better understand what's going on here. Right away in verse 1, Paul turns to this new subject, and he's transitioning to the subject of this immoral brother. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that doesn't occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. In a In the church of Corinth, there was this public problem with one of their members that they refused to deal with. A man was sleeping not with his mother, his father's wife. It's probably his stepmother. You know, who who knows? Maybe his father was an older, well-to-do man that married a younger woman that was maybe perhaps more this man's age, and he fell in love with her. But he was publicly proud of the fact that he was sleeping with his stepmother. It was not the man... And so in Greek culture, you have to understand, in Greek culture, things were very permissive, right? In, in the Greek world, there was a lot that went on that we would call immoral that, that, that the Greeks and people of that culture said, hey, bring it on, more of that. But even in that culture, what this guy was doing was considered disgusting. The Jew, Jewish culture, you know, Paul was trained... He was raised in a, in a Greek culture, a Gentile culture, but tr- as a Jew, he was trained in the way of Judaism. Paul understood both ways of life. And, as a, and in, in the Jewish biblical culture, the sin that this man was committing was so grave and so serious that it warranted death. That's how serious it was in the Jewish culture. Even in the Greek culture, it was disgusting. And the, the tense of the verbs here indicate that it's still going on. Everyone knew it was happening, and it was still going on, and no one did anything. And in verse 2 we read, not only did the people let it happen, but they were proud of it. Look at it, verse 2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you be rather filled with grief? Well, are they proud of the sin itself? I don't think that's probably the case. I think the, the, the pride most likely has to do with the fact that they're proud, proud of their own tolerance, their enlightened ways. This man who was doing this sin was probably a member of high society. And in a structure, you know, we don't understand the caste system. We don't understand societal structure like the, they knew. And they were proud as a church to have an important person like this in their midst They didn't want to mess it up. But the general public was disgusted. They did nothing. And the church discipline process should have happened. It's important to know here that church discipline isn't merely excommunication. Church discipline isn't just shunning. Church discipline isn't just when we say, okay, you're out of the fellowship. Get up here. You're gone. We're giving you the boot. That is not... The only part of church discipline, but oftentimes it's the only part we focus on. Church discipline process is really outlined well in Matthew 18, where Jesus begins this process of telling us how to deal with stuff in our midst. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, a couple things. He says, first of all, go alone. Go alone, he says. Address it in private. Go to, right to your brother. The second thing he says then, if that doesn't work, grab someone else with you. Go with some others. Now, why would you, why would you go 
alone. And then why would you, okay, so you go alone to your brother. He doesn't listen to you. He ignores you. Why would you go and grab someone else? I, I think one of the important reasons, Jesus says, so there's witnesses, but there's also an important reason is because you might be wrong. You might think, my brother's offended me, but the person that goes with you goes, yeah, I, I think you're wrong. I mean, you might just be wrong. It's that checks and balances system. But if the two of you or the three of you go and it doesn't work, then he says, take it to the whole body. And this assumes the involvement of a spiritual authority. So there's these kind of three steps, each one. So many times, friends, we leave church discipline to the elders or to the spiritual authority. But what I love about Jesus is that he assumes involvement with the whole church. You know, when the Iowa Supreme Court decided that same-sex couples could marry in Iowa, um, you know, I wasn't involved in that decision. Nobody asked me my opinion. And so I'm left as an Iowan with the results of that decision. And sometimes we just go, well, throw up my hands in the air. There's nothing I can do about it. I think sometimes people feel that way about church discipline. Like, well, it's not my job. Somebody else will just do it, and I'm left with whatever decision, you know, elders make, whatever. But I love that Jesus in Matthew 18 assumes the involvement of the whole body in church discipline because it starts with you. It doesn't start with the elders. It doesn't start with the spiritual authority. It doesn't start in Corinthians with the apostles. It starts in Matthew. It starts with you. You go to, directly to your brother, first individually. And if there's no repentance, then in a small group. And if there's still no repentance, then in a large group. Friends, it's a privilege to be a follower of Christ in his church. The normal process of church discipline starts with you it starts with the church. And it should be happening a, lot, happening a lot. It should be happening. I mean, there's this normal process. Normally, you, you enter into this relationship. You approach a brother or you approach a sister who's, who's offended you or that you see something going on and you talk to him about it. And normally, 95% of the time, it's done with. And the church discipline process worked and it's over with. And the vast majority of time, that's the way it's supposed to work. The problem is often we skip step one. We jump, we go to step two. We go, hey, uh, Frank, you know, uh, my buddy over here really offended me. What do you think I should do? And then Frank doesn't tell us what we like, so we go to find another guy, you know. Hey, Jim, what do you think I should do about this? And we've gone to 17 people and we haven't talked to the very person that offended us. And we just skip the process. 95% of the time when we do this God's way, it's just dealt with and over with. But occasionally, maybe 4.9% of the time, this is no survey, I'm just pulling these numbers. You know, 4.9% of the time, it requires a brother or sister to go along with you and say, okay. But 0 0.01 or 0.1%, whatever number's left, it requires more. It requires taking it to the church. And unfortunately, we just tend to think of this 0.1% of the time as church discipline. 
But church discipline happens all the time because we're in community, because we all have a sin nature, because we all need the sin nature to be rooted out as we're sanctified and made more like Jesus. We just think of church discipline as excommunication, but it's so much more. Excommunication is the second to the last step in church discipline. Everyone should be involved in the process of church discipline. Now look what happens. By the time we get down to verse 6, okay, so Paul's laid the framework. Here's the situation. You're proud. You shouldn't be. It's going bad. Paul says, I'm not with you, but listen, I've passed judgment on this. You need to as well. And he talks about, again, this process of rooting out the sin nature through church discipline. And then we get to verse 6, and Paul begins to explain why. Why it's important to the church at Corinth that they deal with all this. Why? Why should everyone be involved in the church discipline process? Well, Paul understands that the church is important. He gets it. And so he talks about this little word in verse 6. Look at this. He says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? In the Old Testament, yeast is such an important picture. Uh, the, the Jews had to take their bread and it had to be, was supposed to be yeast-free, the, the bread that they used at Passover and the bread that they used in so many things. And it would be yeast-free so it wouldn't rise, it would be flat. And one of the reasons for this is because of the picture it represents. All it takes is a little yeast, a little tiny yeast, and, you, it's, and it's gone through the whole loaf of bread. It's begun to do its work. And, and the picture for God, for the Israelites, is that I want you to be holy and sanctified and set apart. And all it takes is just a little sin. All it takes is a little bit, which makes the need for Jesus even greater. In the church, Paul understands that sin nature is powerful and the church is too important to not do church discipline. Um, I've been involved in a number of churches in, in my ministry and I was involved in one church where there was a, a man and a woman who were doing ministry together in the church. The man was a single guy. The woman was married to another man. It became very obvious as time went on that, that the, the man and woman who were doing ministry together were having an affair. And so it, it even got to the point where they'd come to the Sunday gathering and, and the woman and the man would be sitting together while her husband was on the other side of the auditorium. And it got gross and blatant and public. And the church walked through the process with them. It started with one person saying, I don't think this is right. And then another person went with, their, with her and, and they went together to this couple and they both said, and they took him individually. They took great pains to say, this is not what God wants. Stop this. But the, this couple that was involved in this relationship refused. They just said, oh, by the time it had gotten to the elders and brought to that last step of the church, this couple involved in the affair said, you know what? We don't really want anything to do with that church anymore. And they removed themselves so they couldn't finish the process. They just couldn't understand why everyone was making this such a big deal. Paul got the deal. He got that the reputation of the whole church is on the line in the world because we're all a family together. The church helps us deal with our sin nature in the flesh. I want to do what pleases me right now. 
In the Spirit, I learn that discipline is good and right. And and the point of the church is that I walk into this and we do this together. So now by the time Paul says all this, look at verse 12. Because this one probably won't settle with well with you. Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? As Bob read for us, he just got done saying that, you know, hey, listen, I've told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. (laughs) By the way, I'm not talking about people in the world because you'd have to leave this world. That wouldn't work. And so he's saying, I'm talking about people in the church. And then he lists not just sexual immorality, but other things too. And then he gets to the point in verse 12, he says, listen, it's not, what business is it to mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? Wait, God calls us to judge each other? The most oft-quoted verse in the Bible used to be John 3.16, but it's not anymore. Now it's judge not lest you be judged. Our culture loves that verse. We love to say, stay out of my business, you know? And in the church, we love that verse too. You can't tell me. You don't know me. You can't talk into my life. You don't have any right to make judgments on me. But according to Paul, we're supposed to do this with each other. We're supposed to make right judgments of each other. Why is my personal life any of your business, we might say? Because as a follower of Jesus, you're part of a family. And so we need it. Your sin nature needs to be rooted out. So all of this sets the picture for 1 Corinthians 5, 13, where Paul tells them finally what to do. For this brother who has ignored the whole process, for this brother who is proud of his sin, who is not repentant, who at every turn has not returned to right living, he says, expel the wicked man from among you. The church discipline exists. And it begins because of sin. It continues because of unrepentance. Church discipline is not, ah, I gotcha. You know, I saw you stole a nickel from the change thing, the, the, the take a penny, leave a thing. I saw you, ha, 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 you're out. No, no, no. It's about unrepentance. It's about walking with the brother or sister. This man needed to deal with his pride. He needed to deal with his sin nature. So I come back to this question that I asked before. How is any of this helpful to you and me? Well, church discipline is something that you and I should want. Church discipline is something that you and I should want. Now that sounds counterintuitive. Um, Because church discipline sounds scary. But you and I have to want our sin nature to be rooted out so badly that we're willing to walk into relationship with each other because it's for our good. You see, but our sin nature is tricky and deceitful. I've been thinking a lot about this picture recently, this picture of, of what it looks like uh, as, as American Christians, or just Christians in general all over the world for all time. But, you know, one of the interesting things about it is you look at your life 
And if you put up that circle of my, this is my life, okay? The circle of my life. I might be tempted to say, okay, this is my life. How do I make decisions for my life? How do I determine what's right and wrong for my life? How do I, Dave Brooks, make decisions on this? And you think, well, I'm a believer and I care what God thinks. So you might be tempted, I might be tempted to think, first of all, it's the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God speaks into my life and he tells me and I listen. And that would be scriptural. Keep in step with the Spirit. We listen to the Spirit. That's part of walking with the Spirit. It's a very important part. The next thing we do is, well, how, you know, how do I know that, that uh, this is really what God wants? And uh, well, we say, well, we look at the Word of God. And we look at this thing because this is one of our values at Waukee Community Church. We hold value to the Word of God. It's God's Word to us. And so we say, is what I want to do contradictory to what is in Scripture? And so most of us at some point ask these two questions. We ask, okay, God, what are you telling me? I'm listening. What are you telling me? And can I prove it in the word of God? But here's the problem. The problem with all this is, first of all, if we only have these two voices that we're listening to, it's very easy to get confused. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. You know, we talk a lot of times about people and, and you know, just say, you just got to believe in the goodness of people. And I don't believe in the goodness of people. I believe that people are depraved because we inherited a sin nature from Adam and we're a mess. And our sin nature in us will choose wrong every time. And so the problem is, oftentimes we say, well, I'm listening to God, but really we're just saying what we want to say. You know, we're just doing what we want to do. I mean, how, how are, you know, Bob, how are you going to tell me that God didn't tell me that, right? And you, you don't know, you're not in my head, you didn't hear it. I hope you're not in my head, that'd be weird. Uh, you know, so it's really my desires. Well, then we go to the Word of God and check and balance. Well, we proof text this baby. You can make, you can find a verse of the Bible to say anything you want it to say, right? You can take it out of context. You can say, well, I found a verse right there. Aha, I got it. So it comes with my desires because my heart is deceitful. And then we put on top of that a proof text where I looked hard to make the passage say whatever I wanted it to say. This is why we need a third arrow in our lives. This is why we need the community of the church. And it's like a check and balance. When we walk into this with people, when we walk into it with them and we say, I invite you to check my deceitful heart, to make sure my sin nature isn't controlling me. I invite you to help me see if my interpretation of God's word is right. I invite you into this with me. We walk into it. You see, to be honest, church discipline is very hard to accomplish in the 21st century. It just is. In Corinth, there's one church. I mean, they're in house churches all over, but there's one church. Where is this guy going to go when he gets excommunicated? I mean, he can't just run down to the third Baptist church down the road, right? Or the fourth Presbyterian church or the 12th or whatever. You can't just do that. There's no other church. He's got nowhere to go. In our culture, what do we do? We just go, I mean, another great church right this way. And there's one this way. There's one that way. I mean, we just go to the next church down the road. 
Church discipline is so hard to accomplish long before and ever gets to an excommunication place. We could just pick up and leave, go to another church. And in reality, there's very little a church can do in our culture. This is why I like to approach church discipline from the other side. This is why it's not about the elders or spiritual authority of a church forcing you into discipline because it practically doesn't work. It's about the, the church, all of us walking faithfully through this. And it's about all of us being individually committed enough to a body of believers to allow them to walk through this with us. Whew. So it's not just a matter of, whoa, they kicked me out. I don't have anywhere to go. It's a matter of they're walking through this and I don't like it, but I'm going to let it happen because I know my sin nature needs to be rooted out. We had to walk into this kind of community. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, as a believer, you understand that your sin nature needs to be rooted out. And this is what's for your benefit. It's you walk so intentionally into community that you're willing to listen to the hard things. (laughs) As a believer, oftentimes we deal this with in our life groups. You know, we get, at Waukee Community Church, we have a pretty simple structure. It's Sunday morning, it's life groups, it's service. It's not complicated. But the primary place for you to get connected and walk into relationship with someone else is in a life group. When you do this, when you make an intentional choice, I'm walking through it because I want to be accountable to the group of believers. So it's not just me and God. It's me and God, and it's his church. And he uses that. And so we walk through it. You know, the interesting thing about this is in 1 Corinthians, God is going to do his work of sanctification, and don't miss this, in you. He's going to do it. Your choices are he's going to use the church or he's going to use Satan. Which one do you want? I mean, that's the message of Genesis 50 when Joseph tells his brothers, hey, you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. God can take Satan's worst intent and use it for our good, but I'd rather the church than Satan. I choose to walk into it. Um, This week, the elder board gave me my annual review. And uh, I have been bugging our elders to give me constructive feedback for like five years. And so usually I get it and it's just, Dave, you're doing a great job. We love you. Thanks for being our pastor. Very encouraging. But, but I don't really have anything that I can run with from that. And so this year I got my <laughs> annual review after inviting them to do this. And guess what? They offered up some constructive criticism. And I didn't like it so much. I read that for a song. And I'm like, well, you know, first of all, I sleep like two hours a night because so, of babies. And, uh, and so, you know, I was just really tired and I put it away. And the next day I came back to it and I reread it. And I realized this isn't bad. This is good. This is, I need to be a better pastor. I need to grow. I invited it. I walked into it. This is what I need. And it's like that with community and church discipline. We walk into it because we know we need it. Now, I said, I don't know if you were listening, but I said about 15 minutes ago that excommunication is the second to last step in the church discipline process. I don't know if you caught that. 
See, 1 Corinthians 5 isn't how the story ends. You got to go over to 2 Corinthians to see how it ends. A couple of letters later, Paul is writing to the church, 2 Corinthians 2, 5. And here's how it ends. Later, the church did it. They disciplined this man. And now Paul says, if anyone has caused grief, speaking of this man, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is now sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love for him. Don't you love it? The last step in church discipline is restoration. And it's beautiful. And when we walk into each other's lives, when we enter in, when we step into each other's lives and I say, I give you permission, I'm not going to run from this. I'm going to step into it. When we work through this whole process, it's beautiful. And it's a picture of the forgiving, transformative power of the gospel. Will you walk into it? Will you realize that you need it so badly that you'll walk into it intentionally, even if it's messy? In the fall of 2003, this really cool celebration took place at a church in Southern California. A man and his wife came up on the stage of this young church plant, and uh, the elders surrounded them. They prayed over them. There was loud music and rejoicing and celebration. Eighteen months previous, that man had been the pastor of that church. And 18 months earlier, it had had been discovered that that man had been having an ongoing affair with someone in the church. And this young church plant was devastated by the immorality. Now you would think, what would happen in that situation normally? You'd think that that pastor might just go, I'm done with you all. I'm walking away. I'm moving to another town. I'll sit in the back row of a church for a while while I recover. You'd think his wife would go, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. But they didn't. They said, this is for our good. And so while he resigned, he asked the church to walk them. They both asked, walk them through a process of restoration of their marriage and restoration of their relationship with the church. And for 18 months, they worked. For 18 months, they sweated, they cried. The people of the church surrounded them as God rooted out this thing in their lives. And 18 months later, the church reaffirmed their love for them. They stood them on the stage and and they celebrated the restoration of their marriage and the restoration of them back into the fellowship of the church. Friends, that takes guts. It takes guts to walk through something that hard, to not just run to the next church down the road. It takes guts to intentionally walk through and say, I will allow a community of Christ-centered, Bible-believing believers into my life to root out my sin nature 
to make me more like Jesus. It takes resolve. It takes a knowledge of the church and an understanding of how God is going to use that to deal with you. And that's hard, but that's good. And so we become like Christ. And this is why James says, confess your sins one to another and be healed. Friends, church discipline is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a picture of community and relationship. It's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of harmony. It's a picture of commitment. Mostly, it's a picture of Christ's love for you and for the church. Will you walk into this kind of radical relationship? Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us the church. Thank you that you have given us believers to come alongside us to affirm what you're telling us in the word of God, to change us, to transform us, to root out our sinful desires and make us more like Jesus. And that is what we want. Give us the courage. Grant us the resolve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.